0: Jose Nino here with another installment of El Nino Speaks. Keith Preston of Attack the System is joining me again. And we're going to be talking about one curious development that we've noticed over the past year and a half or so. Specifically, the emergence of this so-called national conservatism and its cousin, if you will, the post-liberal right. These are like movements that have taken root in the ostensibly nationalist circles of the so-called post-Trump right, if you will. And these people tend to be, at least on surface, more skeptical of foreign policy and interventions abroad, and they're more focused on domestic affairs. Contrary to, say, the Reaganite right of your they're more receptive to proactively using the state to regulate big business and push tariffs and other economic nationalist measures. These guys are not full-blown neoconservatives, but there's actually something weird about them that I've been somewhat skeptical of over the years. For example, you had like Yoram Hazoni who's running the National Conservatism Conference since like 2019, which is like an event that's sponsored by the Edmund Burke Institute. And the initial conference featured people like John Bolton, Tucker Carlson, and Josh Hawley. That's a motley crew of people because on one hand, Bolton is what I would call like a super hawk on foreign policy. Carlson, on the other hand, is much more non-interventionist. And Josh Hawley... Is an enigma in himself because his voting record tends to be all over the place like he'll vote to continue the war on yemen but then talk about how we need to end never-ending wars and he recently voted against that monstrosity of a 40 billion dollar aid package to ukraine so he's an interesting figure and definitely one of like the future leaders of this national conservatism movement and then you have that webzine, Compact, which is Peter Thiel funded. And at the head of it is Sorab Amari, who's like the founder and editor of the magazine. And from the looks of it, these guys are definitely a bit more non-interventionist, especially Omari at least now, because his background is even more interesting due to the fact that he used to be a pro pahlaviist anti-Islamic regime advocate in Iran. I don't know what he is now, like a, like a Catholic or something, like a kind of like trad-cath type of deal. But yeah, Compact is Peter Thiel funded, and they have an interesting roster of writers there. I actually interviewed one of the writers there, uh, Malcolm Shayun. He's a Swedish post-left type. He's also pretty skeptical of a lot of interventions abroad. But this new emerging movement, there's some promising signs of it, but there's also a lot of red flags there. And what are your general thoughts, Keith, about this national conservatism and post-liberal right? Well, it's a rather interesting phenomena that's developed, uh, to be sure.
1: I would approach this particular movement with a considerable amount of caution and skepticism because the appearance of this movement, at least the, the feeling that I get about it, is that what this national conservatism thing is, is an effort to essentially create a type of Trumpism without Trump, if you will. As we know, when Trump entered the Republican primaries back in 2015, and of course eventually won the election in 2016, uh, he really gave the Republican Party and the wider uh, Conservatism Incorporated Apparatus and and certainly the neocons a a slap in the face. And ever since that happened, the elements that were controlling the Republican Party and the wider conservative movement prior to Trump have been in a position of having to plot what they're going to do next. How are they going to respond to the rise of Trumpism? And I think that we need some background to this because this is a uh, fairly complicated situation. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with the neoconservatives. Neoconservatives in popular language are thought of as simply being Republicans who are super hawkish, Republicans who favor a super aggressive interventionist foreign policy, uh, the kinds of folks who who were behind the war in Iraq back in 2003. But the neocons, the neoconservatives, actually have their roots on the far left, and and probably not as many people are as aware of that. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, the people who eventually became the neocons were people who had backgrounds in things like Trotskyism, social democracy, Marxism, who had been a part of socialist and communist organizations at various points and who gradually moved rightward for a variety of reasons. Some of them came to uh, oppose the Soviet Union, largely on uh, Trotskyite or social democratic anti-Stalinist grounds. Some of them were opposed to the new left, either on aesthetic grounds or because of the fact that much of the new new left was uh, pro-Palestinian, and the neocons were very strongly pro-Israel. And For a variety of reasons, the neoconservatives in the 1970s started moving towards the Republican Party. Previously, they had been on the far left end of the Democratic Party. They had had an organization of their own called Social Democrats USA, which was a leftist organization that was backed by the intelligence services of the United States. The guy who more or less coined the term neoconservative, Irving Kristol, who is the father of Bill Kristol, who's still on MSNBC and, and some of the news programs. Irving Crystal at one point was associated with the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was a leftist organization that was also funded by the CIA back in the 50s and 60s. And what they were trying to do was create a left that was controlled by the American intelligence services that would be a counterpart to the pro-Soviet left. Uh, so th- that's who the neocons are. This is what they have their background in. And in the 70s, they started moving towards the Republicans, I think, for a variety of reasons. One is that they wanted to get Republican businessmen to finance their movement. Also, I think there was an opportunistic alliance between the neocons and the evangelical Christians that started to become influential in the 70s. And the common interest there is their shared uh, enthusiasm for Israel. And also the big thing was their their hawkish foreign policy views. Uh, The the neocons thought that the Democratic Party of the 70s, under the leadership of people like George McGovern and Ted Kennedy and, and Jimmy Carter, was not hawkish enough. So they wanted to move in a more hawkish direction. And what happened was that in the 80s and 90s and on into the 2000s, the neocons went into the conservative movement, went into the Republican Party, eventually you know, if not took it over, reached a, a level of power where nothing really happens in the movement, in the conservative movement, without neocon approval. And they became the de facto intellectual leadership of the American right. They achieved prominent positions in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and George H. W. Bush. They were influential in the Republican Party during the '90s, during the Newt Gingrich era. Era. They were. They probably were at the peak of their power during the George W. Bush era and during the Iraq War, the war on terrorism and things like that. And the neocons tended to still dominate the American conservative movement and the Republican Party um, up until the time that Trump came along. And the big question for the neocons after that is how are they going to respond to Trump? And it looks like the neocons have gone in multiple directions. Some of them have gone back to the Democratic Party. Nowadays, you can watch MSNBC and other liberal-leaning networks, and you can see prominent neocons on those channels as allies of the liberal wing of the political establishment against Trump. That's why you see figures like George Will, David Brooks, Bill Kristol. You see all of these guys on MSNBC and you know Rachel Maddow and PBS and, and places like that as critics of, of Trumpism. You know, these are all people who were either neocons or In the neocon orbit at one point. At the same time, you see other neocons who've started their own anti-Trump opposition within the Republican Party. That's what these never-Trumpers are. That's what the Lincoln Project is. That's what uh, Liz Cheney is, Adam Kinzinger, those officials, the anti-Trump Republicans. Liz Cheney and her father, Dick Cheney, they're not really neocons. What they are are just super hawks, but they were always allies of the neocons. Also, you see other neocons that have tried to embrace Trumpism by embedding themselves in it, you know, kind of infiltrating Trumpism, if you will. One example of that is the Podhoretz clan, um, the the family of Norman Podhoretz, or a prominent neocon family. Podhoretz, along with Irving Kristol, was considered to be one of the founders of neoconservatism. In fact, Midge Dechter, who died recently, was, you know, sort of one of the godmothers of, of neoconservatism. And then their son, John Pothoris, is a, a well known neoconservative journalist. But their son in law is Elliot Abrams, and he's been involved in the foreign policy State Department apparatus for decades. Uh, he was involved in the State Department back during the Reagan era. Uh, he had an involvement in the Iran Contra affair in the 80s. And during the Trump administration, Elliot Abrams was actually uh, secured a position as the United States envoy to Iran. Uh, And that's a particularly important issue there because the neocons have always been very, very zealous about favoring regime change in Iran. And the reason they want to do that is because they view Iran as Israel's uh, primary competitor in the region, in the Middle East. And then we also have seen what I think this national conservatism really is. I strongly suspect that national conservatism is an effort by the neocons to create a type of populist right that is a fake neocon front movement. You know, they're trying to steer the populist right. People on the right who are more inclined toward populism, nationalism, paleoconservatism, paleolibertarianism, some of these viewpoints on the right, it seems that what this national conservatism is is an effort to essentially steer those people in the neocon direction and consequently co-opt those movements for what amounts to neocon-friendly policies. Now, if we look at the events that you were describing earlier, you were talking about the national conservatism conferences, there was one that was held back in uh, I guess it was in 2019. The one that you mentioned where Tucker Carlson and Josh Howley and John Bolton were present. That was one of them. There was another one that was held this past October of 2021. This was held in Florida. And this one, some of the people uh, from the first conference were noticeably absent. That particularly those who hold controversial views on things like race and immigration, like Amy Wax. Uh, Also, those with strongly non-interventionist foreign policy views, like Carlson, were also excluded as well. Uh, At the same time, you had individuals there who have a lengthy history of being aligned with the the neocons. For example, Rich Lowry, who is a former editor, or he may still be an editor, of the National Review. Uh, He was one of the presenters at this most recent National Conservatism Conference. There's a lot of other folks who are present who are have been in the neocon orbit at various times. One of the uh, principal figures in this conference was this fellow Yoram Hazani that you mentioned. Yoram Hazani is an Israeli nationalist who is widely considered to be one of the intellectual godfathers of national conservatism, You know, which is interesting given the neocons and their relationship to the Israeli right. You mentioned sarah Amari, until just a few years ago, Sorb Hamari was writing for the New York Post, which is a neocon-affiliated publication. And and in the New York Post, Hamari was doing things like writing the praises of Norman Podhoretz, one of the godfathers of, of neoconservatism. Uh, and as you pointed out, he was also a, a palavist, a, a proponent of regime change in Iran. Nowadays, he claims, I, I'm told at least, I, that he claims that he has renounced those affiliations. But I, I think it's very, very curious— That we have this national conservatism developing that seems to be, you know, what a perfect neocon front movement would be if neocons were trying to co-opt the populist right and and steer it in their direction. If you look at who some of the other people were at this gathering, you see that it it was very rainbow. You know, you had a lot of prominent gay men there as sponsors and speakers: Peter Thiel, Douglas Murray, Dave Rubin. Uh, At the same time, you had a lot of purported Catholic traditionalists like uh, Patrick Deneen there, also people that are commonly called theocons, which were um, more or less religious supporters of the neocons, like the kinds of folks associated with First Things magazine. So this is just a very, very strange situation that seems to be developing with these national conservatives.
0: Yeah, I find this whole hodgepodge of groups to be Curious, especially the Peter Thiel types, because Thiel himself, especially during the Bush era, was funding a lot of generic Republicans. But then over the time, he started backing like Ron Paul and became like also like a spokesperson for uh, Donald Trump and wholeheartedly endorsed him in 2016. Now he's gotten more. Ideologically populist, if you will, because in the 2020 election cycle, I remember him really getting fully behind Chris Kobach, who's a big immigration patriot slash like constitutionalist hybrid. And he's also backing people like Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, Vance being a pretty strong proponent of like a restrained foreign policy. He made a name for himself by being like the only candidate in that Ohio Senate primary for. Expressing like beliefs that we should not have like a no-fly zone over Ukraine, like as crazy as that sounds, but like it seems like Teal has definitely gotten like more ideological in terms of who he's financing. What do you make of Teal overall? Is he like basically competing with the Azony types, or is he just like trying to corner like a certain like niche market within like the populist right? Well, when you
1: look at the donor class for the politicians for the political parties and and candidates and the various think tanks and other media outlets that are associated with all of these things when you look at the donors i think you really have to look at what angle they're working teal seems to represent what i call the silicon valley right you know since silicon valley has become prominent in american economic and political life I would say that the majority of Silicon Valley has largely ar- aligned itself with Wall Street. And that has be- really become the basis of the Democratic Party. Like, if you look at who the Democratic Party's leadership class com- or, or their donor class, where the Democratic Party's donor class comes from, it comes primarily from Wall Street and Silicon Valley and other similar interests. But there are sectors of the Silicon Valley crowd that are also backing the Republicans for various reasons. I'm always very cynical about that. I mean, I tend to look at it like when big business interests like Peter Thiel, who's the owner of PayPal, uh, when they back politicians and political parties, I tend to look at it like they're just covering their bases. You know, they, they, they want to spread the money around uh, in order to be on the good side of whoever they think is going to end up trying to regulate their business or something like that. I tend to think that's, mostly what motivates big capitalists, so to speak, that put money into these political projects. You know, it's simply uh, an investment because they're trying to get the most favorable uh, policies they can from the government that's going to uh, affect their own business interests. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, Peter Thiel has been all over the place. You know, now he's thrown in with the National Conservatives. Before that, he was a Trumpist. He's been a libertarian. He's been a conservative. And I think he's basically just a main chancer. You know, I think he's going with forever. He sees the action being at a particular time. Uh, you know, the idea that Peter Thiel is a conservative is kind of, you know, dubious. I mean, for one thing, he, he's been an aggressive champion of gay marriage for decades. He, he is gay married. Uh, you know, and, and whatever you think about gay marriage, that's not a conventionally conservative issue. So I tend to think he's more of just a business Republican who is mostly just looking out for his own financial and, and business interests. And for some reason, he sees national conservatism as his best bet at the present time. I think he's hoping that this is something that can grow and that he can uh, have his hands in and have influence in. I mean, there's obviously plenty of proto- uh, prototypes for that. Uh, I tend to interpret much of post-war conservatism. That is, the conservative movement that developed back in the 1950s under the leadership of people like William F. Buckley, and which eventually became uh, politically influential first through the Goldwater campaign in the 60s, and then with the Ronald Reagan election in the in 1980, I tend to interpret that much of post-war conservatism as an insurgency by the capitalist class of the Sun Belt, that is, industries and that were based in the South, you know, the Deep South, the West, the Southwest, the Midwest, Uh, there was an insurgency by Sunbelt Industries against the traditional Northeastern establishment that was dominated by Northeastern elites, like the Rockefellers, like the Kennedys. Uh, For instance, in the 70s, the the Rockefeller family essentially ran both parties. You know, you uh, you had the Republican Party being led by Richard Nixon, by Gerald Ford, you know, by Nelson Rockefeller himself. And then you had the Democratic Party with candidates like Jimmy Carter, who was a David Rockefeller Democrat, a member of the Trilateral Commission, a protege of David Rockefeller personally. So, you know, back in those days, the Northeastern establishment essentially ran the entire political system. And of course, the Kennedys, they were the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and all of that. In the starting with the rise of the conservative movement in the 60s and the 70s, the Goldwater Reagan conservatism, what that was was a Sunbelt challenge to the northeastern establishment, and then they, you know, they on a, on a common level they framed it in this kind of populist right populism as well, you know, like in the in the back in the because I mean I, I'm old enough that I lived through this, so I remember how this was. You know, back when Ronald Reagan, for example, was running for president, it was going to be all about well, we're going to fight communism, and we're going to cut taxes, and we're going to reduce inflation, and we're going to restore traditional values, and you know, we're not going to have a country that's being run by hippies and homosexuals anymore, and that kind of thing. And it was that kind of a right wing conservative populism, and that was a workable program. I mean, you know, I mean, in the sense that the uh, the Republican Party was able to be fairly dominant for a while the Republican Party, you know, managed to achieve a lot of the policies that wanted to get through like, uh, you know, tax cuts, like marginal tax cuts rates and, and intensifying the Cold War with the with the Soviet Union and then later, you know, a neoconservative, more aggressive foreign policy. So, so it, that strategically it worked, at least for a time. And I think that, you know, that's what's going on now with these national conservatives. I think this is another set of financial interests that are backing this, that they see this as a way of bending this kind of populist right that's emerged in the Trump era, it's a way of bending that in their own direction and sort of co-opting it, if you will.
0: Are there any other organizations that are trying to co-opt a lot of the populist right to move it in a more like regime-friendly direction that come to mind? Yeah, well, it's interesting because if you look at who the speakers
1: were at this particular conference and the kinds of affiliations that they have, you can get some idea what all of that was about and, you know, who's behind some of this. For example, we've been talking about Peter Thiel, he actually gave the keynote address. Right? Among other figures that were there, one was Michael Anton. He is associated with the Claremont Institute. That's a think tank at Claremont University on the West Coast, a conservative-oriented think tank. They are or were followers of Harry Jaffa, who was a prominent conservative scholar, a very big Lincoln idolater. That's one of the one of Jaffa's biggest enthusiasms was Lincoln. He was a big Lincoln enthusiast. But Michael Anton is probably most well known for having been the author of the Of the article Flight 93, it was about the Trump election saying, well, we've got to vote for Trump because this is our Flight 93 moment. He's referring, of course, to Flight 93 from the September 11th incident where the passengers tried to take control of the plane, knowing if they didn't, the plane was going to crash anyway. So Michael Anton was basically arguing we've got to vote for Trump out of desperation, but he's a Claremont affiliate. There's also Mary Harrington, she's some sort of, you know, supposed Catholic traditionalist. She's actually English. And she's sort of in the theocon orbit, the first things types of people. Marcia Unger-Sargon, she was a, another presenter at this conference. She's actually a leftist. She's actually a Jewish leftist, a self-proclaimed socialist, but she's become sort of one of these anti-woke leftists that you have nowadays, you know the ones that say, well, the problem with the left is that they've gotten too carried away with the woke thing and they've abandoned the working class and all of that, So she's sort of, sort of in that genre. Another one is Glenn Lowry. He's generally thought of as a black conservative. I'd say he's really more of a neoliberal than a conservative, but he's also long been in the neocon orbit. I think he identified as a neocon at one point. Josh Howley was at this conference. You know, my interpretation of Josh Howley is I think he's just a main chancer. You know, I think he just works whatever angle he thinks is advantageous professionally, you know, politically at, at a particular moment. His affiliations are sort of on the writer's side of Conservatism Incorporated. Then you had Marco Rubio, who was at one point a neocon darling. I mean, he's a senator, and he was Bill Crystal's favorite initially back in the first Trump election. Cruz, you know, similar background, Ted Cruz. Then we have Sorhab Amari was there. We've already talked about him and Yoram Hazani. Dan McCarthy was there. He's from the American Conservative Magazine and other similar publications. I've noticed, though, some of that circle has gone more neocon in recent years. Yes, they have in some regards. Yeah, I remember when they started, it was basically Patton Cannon and then Tacky from Tacky's Mag and Scott McConnell that started that primarily for the purpose of developing an anti-war right in the United States. But I've noticed over time that they haven't become as hawkish as the hardcore neocons are, but they have kind of moved in the neocon orbit, I think. You know, some of, as far as some of the other people that were there, the names I recognize, you know, Patrick Deneen, he's got this kind of Catholic traditionalist supposed outlook that he has how he thinks he's going to apply that in an American context, I don't know, but, you know, it is. He has an Avian Vermeule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rich Lowry, who's a, a neocon ally for many years. Also, another one was Ion Hursa Ali. She is a Somali immigrant. She is a former Muslim, and she's mostly known for being an anti-Muslim, you know, being an anti-Muslim, former Muslim. She was actually at one point a member of the Dutch parliament. She's married to Neal Ferguson, who's a British. I wouldn't say he's a neocon, more just a, a friend of the neocons. So she was one of the, you know, the speakers there. There's also an Indian fellow, uh, another Silicon Valley entrepreneur, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's another one. He's kind of like anti woke. Like he's, he's sort of, he criticizes the business class from within, saying the business class is a little too woke. He's somewhat similar to Peter Thiel, I think, in terms of his outlook and orientation. Then there was David Brog. He's actually from an organization called Christians United for Israel, which is John Hagee's organization. It's like a hardcore Christian Zionist organization. And then I could keep going down the list, but you know, Dave Rubin, the YouTuber, he was there. Raj of Benedict Option fame. It seems like there's a whole lot of folks that are involved in this project that are close to the neocon orbit or have been moving into the neocon orbit in in more recent times. Also, for listeners that don't have any kind of background of dealing with the left, one thing that's always been common among the Marxist-Leninist left is that you have this concept called a vanguard party. A vanguard party is basically a party that is like an organization of self-appointed professional revolutionaries And they are more or less the self-appointed leadership of the working class and the socialist struggle and, you know, and all of that kind of stuff from a Marxist perspective. But what Marxist-Leninist vanguard parties are known for doing is creating a lot of front groups that are designed to appeal to a lot of different kinds of divergent interests, including things that don't seem to make any sense. I used to come across this all the time, like back in the late 80s, early 90s, I used to be around a lot of student-oriented leftist organizations. And I'd see this all the time. You'd you'd have a group like the Workers' World Party, which is like a Stalinist pro-North Korean party. And then they would set up some front group called the Old People's Project and, you know, to try to organize, say, poor black people in Atlanta or something like that. And then they'd have another front project called the Disabled People's Liberation Front to organize disabled huh. people, disabled rights. And Well, they're famous for this, and they'll create front groups. These kinds of groups will create front groups that are just really bizarre, and sometimes they really get outlandish. Like the Lyndon LaRouche organization was one of these. Lyndon LaRouche was, in my interpretation of him, was a lifelong Marxist who I think realized that Marxism was a no-sell in America, so he created what was essentially a Marxist Leninist party, but it reinvented itself outwardly as this kind of weird conspiracy cult and you know, and more like Alex Jones does Marxism or something. That's the flavor I get from this national conservatism. That's how this comes across. This national conservative movement looks like something some strange Marxist-type party would put together where it would have a collection of front groups and stuff designed to appeal to every little population segment they want to appeal to and in a way that, you know, doesn't really seem to make any sense on the surface, but there's a method behind what they're trying to do in terms of the demographics they're trying to reach. You know, and you see that a lot. You know, like I was saying, you know, you, you'll have Stalinist parties that create front groups that are environmental organizations, and they'll have another front group that's about police brutality, and they'll have another one that's about, you know, school liberation for kids or something, you know? and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, mean, I'm serious. I'm not just making this up. See an example of all this kind of stuff. And that's what this looks like. I mean, that's what this National Conservatism Conference looks like. It looks like something some Trotskyite group would put together to try to have as many front projects as they can to try to build a type of popular front that they're ultimately directing secretly behind the scenes and are trying to manipulate and maintain control of. That's exactly what this looks like. You know, like the old Communist Party from the 1930s. And of course, the neocons, as we know, they, the neocons have their roots in this. The neocons have their roots in Trotskyism and Marxism, in the radical leftism. Many of the leaders of the neoconservative milieu today are second generation neocons. I mean, Bill Kristol, John von Hardst, these kinds of people are the sons or daughters of former Marxists who were probably trained in these kinds of organizing methods. So yeah, I I would approach this national conservatism thing with a great deal of skepticism and caution.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you this. Was Barry Weiss at that conference as well?
1: Barry Weiss, now, let me look over the list here. I'm actually looking at a list of the number of the people who were present.
0: Because she would definitely fit in with that crowd. Because I think the one overarching trend that I see among all those people is that they're pretty staunch Zionists, irrespective of whatever disagreements they have, like on the political spectrum on domestic issues and all that. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean,
1: Barry Weiss certainly is a strong Zionist. You know, she's basically a liberal who's sort of like an anti-woke liberal. Yeah. But she's also very pro-Israel you know, one of her grievances against the woke left is that they're not pro-Israel enough. Yeah. That was one of the grievances that the neocons had against the new left from the 60s. That's why there was a big split between the new left and the neocons back in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, Barry Weiss, I agree, would certainly fit in. I don't see that she was on this list. Yeah. I don't, I don't. So yeah, but I'm sure if she wasn't at this event, I'm sure she'll be at a future one because she's exactly in the vein of what they're looking for. And again, like you were saying, because this common theme in all of this seems to be pro-Israel, that leads me again to the conclusion that this is some kind of neocon front project, because that's always what the neocons are about. They always want to steer it back to, you know, first things first from their perspective, and first things means Israel.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to, back to Weiss's case, because I've argue this with some people, there is like a a realignment in Israel too, where it's becoming like much more right-wing and and ethno-religious to the point where liberal Zionism, like the stuff that like Theodore Herschel used to push, like the spiritual founder of like Zionism is becoming like an afterthought there. And it's like becoming much more right-wing, but it does seem a lot of people forget this too, that the conservative movement historically, like especially in the 50s and 40s, was not that pro-Zionist. In fact, some of them were, I think like Burnham was somewhat sympathetic to the Palestinians. And that's more of a recent development, especially like after like the emergence of the new lefts, that Republicans started becoming more pro-Israel because you do see a faction slowly grow within the Democratic Party that has become more israeli skeptic if not like outright hostile to israel especially like amongst the squad and like some of the progressive crowd but on the republican side like almost all factions you go from like the chamber of commerce types to the hawks and social conservatives they're like fully committed to zionism and like israel like the sole exception is like thomas massey who just votes against like military aid and all of that but it does seem that the natural home for any like single-issue Zionist voter in the U.S., whether you're a revisionist Zionist or a liberal Zionist, it's going to be the Republican Party.
1: Yeah, well, you're right in the sense that while the United States was very influential in the creation of Israel, Truman administration had a major hand in creating Israel after World War II. It's also true that the US Israel relationship tended to be more balanced. I know in particular during the Eisenhower administration when there was the crisis over the Suez Canal, yep, Eisenhower actually ended up siding with the Egyptians <laughs> over the Israelis in that conflict. And then I think it was really around the Kennedy administration and certainly in the Johnson administration after the 6-day war that America started to take a really strongly pro-Israel perspective. There are different reasons given for why that was. Some argued that the domestic Zionist interest on the domestic level in the United States started becoming more powerful. And I think there's some truth to that. I also think that the United States increasingly came to see Israel as an important ally against Soviet influence because you had a lot of Arab nationalists, secular Arab nationalists and also Marxists that were pro-Soviet, or at least within the Soviet orbit. For instance, I mean, even like the Assads were in the Soviet orbit. Yes. You know, Nasser in Egypt was in the Soviet orbit. You know, even Saddam Hussein, you know, Ba'athism generally, you know, and then initially in Iran, there was a Marxist opposition movement as well. So I think that the, the West, America, Britain, started to see Israel as a bulwark against secular Arab nationalism, which was also tended to be Soviet-friendly. And also, during the same time, they started promoting this kind of Salafi Islamic fundamentalism. During the same time that the United States became closer to Israel, they started strengthening relations with Saudi Arabia as well, and, and also with these Islamist tendencies that you see in the East today. I think they viewed both of those as a bulwark against Soviet, sympathetic Arab nationalism. But then, yeah, over time, you start to see the United States moving closer and closer to Israel, That was certainly after the Six-Day War, and particularly with the Yom Kippur War in 73, because that's when Israel and Egypt, of course, went to war, and the United States started shipping arms to Israel, and then OPEC retaliated by imposing a fuel embargo on the United States, which caused massive gas shortages, fuel shortages, and inflation. I remember that. I was in elementary school then, and in the United States, we actually had to Ration gas because there was a shortage. And they opposed a policy where you could only buy gas on certain days of the month. Like if the last number on your license plate was an odd number, you could only buy gas on an odd numbered day of the month. Or if it was an even number, then you could only buy gas on an even numbered day of the month. You know, so that means if let's say the last number on your license plate is two, that means you can only buy gas on say the second the fourth and the sixth and you know all the even numbered days of the month there was an issue i used to hear adults back then talking about they say are you odd or even and of course you had problems with people stealing gas yeah <laughs> and that <the> thing <laughs> siphoning gas became a thing back then it became a popular type of crime so you know, that obviously that led to a lot of conflict between the united states and the arab nations and, of course, along the way, the United States moved closer and closer to Israel as a result. And then as the United States was moving closer to Israel, you know, certainly the most hawkish elements in the United States tended to be in the Republican Party. And then the neocons started moving towards the Republicans over that, you know, over this kind of hawkish view of, you know, the Soviet Union and also Israel And that's how we got the kind of alliance between the neocons, these former leftists on one hand, and then the Goldwater-Reagan conservatives. Those two kind of came together in the 70s and 80s.
0: Yeah, altogether, there's some pretty interesting dynamics in place. Now, I've noticed that you've expressed some skepticism of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I personally like him at the state level, but... I have some caveats here because I do believe that he would likely get co-opted at the federal level by virtue of the fact that the people he has to cater to and answer to to reach such a prominent political position. And when you add in the institutional inertia that you have in the administrative state and just like the broader bureaucratic state, you just are just going to have like a co-opted presidency because people tend to also forget this as well. George W Bush like when he was governor of Texas was relatively solid that's when i first moved to the country and all that but then he had a pretty decent restrained foreign policy platform when he ran for the presidency but then when he came into office that was a totally like different story and when you look at all these factors it does make it seem that a like hypothetical DeSantis presidency will be like another disappointment would you generally agree with that assessment? Yeah, the problem that I have
1: with DeSantis is the same one I would probably have with many other Republicans who could potentially be a candidate in the next election. I see a similar problem with Mike Pence. I see a similar problem with Marco Rubio, certainly Tom Cotton, a number of other people. And that I think most of those people would be a repeat of George W. Bush. They would largely just be silly putty in the hands of the neocons. And that is what I think is most problematic about, them. you know, whoever the Republicans put up as their candidate in 2024, 20, I hope it's a hardcore Trumpist and not one of these types that are basically Trumpist by convenience only, because that's what a lot of these people are. I mean, a lot of these people are just They're on the populist right only for the sake of convenience. And I think if they actually got into the White House, they would be just like George W. Bush. They would be silly putty in the hands of these neocon elements. I mean, even when you look at DeSantis' record as governor of Florida, you know, he's done all of these, you know, Israeli-friendly things. You know, like uh, he introduced something called the Palestinian Accountability Act. Some of this stuff is, you know— I mean, it shows where, where he's coming from. It shows who's backing him. You know, he's been a recipient of Adelson money. I mean, Adelson passed away a while back, but, but you know, the Adelson-related interest, he's been a recipient of funding from them. Yeah, so I, I think he would be a, a neocon, you know, essentially be a neocon puppet.
0: Yeah, I would also call attention to the Cuban support base in Florida they're very much neocon fellow travelers and very much hardcore Zionists across the board and actually this goes more geopolitical too a lot of the reason the Cuban vote aligns well with a lot of national security conservatives is that Cuba for example the the current regime and its numerous allies like Venezuela those are some of like the biggest anti Zionist blocs on the geopolitical sphere. In fact, Venezuela, you have a pretty sizable Syrian population of like Syrian origin there. And there are some Venezuelans of Syrian extraction that serve in the national legislature that have actually fought alongside the Assad government to prop it up. And that's one thing. To keep in mind with DeSantis as well, that he's ultimately answering to a lot of like neocon and Zionist adjacent interest groups. Like, I would probably prefer him to just stay at the state level, all things considered, because his presidency, as you said before, would be very malleable to neocon interests. I think like this is kind of like a theme that I've noticed with the broader conservative movement that it's been very effective in the past say like 70 years or so at uh, finding like dissident and insurgent movements in in its space and then just assimilating them, purging out their most trouble some elements, and just continue to incorporate them in their overall machine. And it almost like does that with pretty breathtaking efficiency.
1: Yeah. Well yeah, the neocons have done that with quite a few movements. They're trying to do it with the Trump movement and the wider populist right now. They did that with the evangelicals in the 80s and 90s. You know, they did it with the Bush administration. And I, yeah, and they did it with the the Goldwater Reagan conservatism. Yeah, and I do think you're right. I think that a DeSantis presidency would be a repeat of that. And not just DeSantis, there's a long list of people like that. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. Dime a dozen. Yeah. If you look at the people who in politics who would be most resistant to the neocons from the right, Look at the list of people in Congress who voted against the Ukraine aid package. Yes. Those would be the ones I think that would be the most resistant to the neocons. You know, like I know Marjorie Green. she tweeted something in response to AOC. She said, you know, like, uh, what kind of carbon footprint do you think? Yes. Court-
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that cohort of people like the Paul Gosers, Andy Biggs, Thomas Massey, I've written about those people extensively. They are like pretty much the bulwark against that. It'll be interesting to see if the Neocon crowd tries to create fissures between them because I noticed this too. I think it happened like a month ago or a few weeks that there was like a kind of like tiff between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Green, And it was being reported by the media. So I exercise some degree of skepticism because they have an interest in trying to create rifts but there was apparently, they had, like, an argument about Green's, like, appearance at that of Nick Fuentes, about that America First event. And I have noticed that Bobert has made, like, some overtures with people like Mike Pompeo, like, some, like, the Super Hawk crowd that is pretty anti-America First. And actually, you've seen, like, Pompeo and Mike Pence to have, like, choice words for... America First types in that almost sound like Liz Cheney, like when they say like these people are like Putin sympathizers and all that. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the long term. Yeah, I, I think
1: so. I think clearly the neocons and the media and the liberal side definitely want to have a divide and conquer approach towards the more populist right. And of course, there was a lot of people on the populist, right, a lot of political figures who kind of have their foot in multiple camps at the same time anyway. You know, there's a lot of impurity in some of those camps. But I, I do think, though, that what the neocons ultimately want and what they're doing with this national conservatism thing is they're trying to figure out how they can once again have the kind of power they had during the George W. Bush era. I think that's what they really want. They want to get back into a situation like that. Or they can use the power of the American military-industrial complex to, you know, engage in all of these regime change wars in other countries, you know, particularly those that they see as competitors to Israel, like Iran and others like that, Syria and so forth. Uh, I think that's you know, their real goal. That's what they really want to do. And I do think that a serious Trump-leaning, you know, America first, whatever you want to call it figure would be somewhat more resistant to that. I mean, an interesting thing about Trump was that Trump was very, very, very pro-Israel. He was also very pro-Saudi, but at the same time, he didn't have the same inclinations as these neocon elements. You know, he, uh, well, he did bring Bolton into his administration, but then he turned around and fired him, you know, it's and he had Pompeo there too. So, he, I mean, he he kind of worked the middle between some of these tendencies. But I think that what the neocons want is they want somebody who's going to just essentially be silly putty in their own hands. You know, that's what they're looking for.
0: Yeah, I agree with that overall assessment. Though there is like some hope because I've noticed since, for example, former Congressman Ron Paul ran for the presidency in 2008 and 2012. And then the follow-up with Donald Trump's victory in 2016, there is a clear non-interventionist slash realist foreign policy tendency slowly gaining traction within the GOP. And with all that considered, how optimistic are you about the prospects of the GOP fully realigning on non-interventionist lines in the long term? Well, I wouldn't say it's going
1: to realign along non-interventionist lines, I'd say that we're moving back to a situation. I think American politics, when it comes to foreign policy, is moving back to a situation that's kind of like it was prior to the Vietnam War era. Prior to the Vietnam War era, the Democrats were at least as hawkish as the Republicans were, often more so. If you look at all the wars, by the way, of the 20th century that the United States got involved in, most of them it was under the leadership of Democrats. World War I, World War II, the Korean War— Vietnam. You know, I mean, maybe the Philippine War was about the only war that a Republican got us into. So the Democrats were always at least as hawkish as the Republicans prior to the Vietnam War and the, really prior to the McGovern era. And for a time in the 70s and 80s, you had a kind of neo-isolationism that developed among de- Democrats that since has been replaced with neoliberalism, which is kind of, you know, it's basically just neoconservatism light, starting with Bill Clinton. But in those days, though, back prior to the Vietnam War, among the Republicans, you had a mixture of hawks, realists, isolationists, you know, a a range of viewpoints. You had figures like Robert Taft, who was a non-interventionist to a large degree, President Herbert Hoover, President Calvin Coolidge, some of those folks, you know, there was always this kind of, I guess you could say, classical liberal strand to the Republican Party that was skeptical of foreign military interventions, whereas the Democrats tended to be full-on hawks much of the time. And I think you'll see we're moving back to something like that. We're moving back to a situation where the Democrats are once become Again, becoming the hawks that they were back in the 1950s. I mean, we see that nobody from the Democratic side in Congress voted against the 40 billion for the Ukraine. AOC didn't vote against it. Ilan Omar didn't vote against it. So the entire spectrum of the Democratic Party voted for that. And yet we did see 57 Republicans in the House vote against it. And then in the Senate, Ron Paul was the, you know, the one obstructionist voice there. So I think that indicates that we're largely going back to this kind of alignment we had back in the 1950s where the Democrats are across the board hawks for the most part. The Republicans are a mixture of hawks and realists and and isolationists. And I think that, you know, some of these more populist-leaning Republicans are more in that vein, that kind of Taft Republican vein.
0: I see very interesting stuff all around. And yeah, I think this is a good place to wrap this up. Thank you again for coming on, Keith. And like always, plug your content.
1: Yeah. If you want to know more about me or what I do, uh, you can just check out our website at attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds, attackthesystem.com. And then from there, you can find links to some of my books and social media and all of that as well.
0: Fantastic. And thank you all to my audience for listening to El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.